0: You are listening to Reach MD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Atrial fibrillation, a danger or a nuisance? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host today, and with me today is Dr. Bradley Knight. He is the professor of medicine in cardiology at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and he is the director of electrophysiology at the University of Chicago. Today we are going to discuss atrial fibrillation, the presentation, and approach to treatment of this very common condition. Welcome to the program, Dr. Knight.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Let's start first by talking a little bit about the prevalence of atrial fibrillation. How big of a problem is this in the uh, general community?
1: Well, it's a very big problem, and I'm uh, delighted that you chose to cover this topic in your program. Uh, atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia in the United States. It accounts for very high number of admissions to the hospital and emergency room visits, and is quite common. Certainly increases as patients get older, but patients over age 65, there's about a 5% prevalence of atrial fibrillation in that patient population.
0: Does it seem to present differently at different age groups?
1: I'm not sure if it's related to the age group, but there's a very wide spectrum of presentation, which is very important. There are patients who are surprisingly entirely asymptomatic, and it may be that older patients are more likely to present this way. I think that the degree of symptoms sometimes correlates with the ventricular rate during atrial fibrillation, and older patients often have a slow or controlled ventricular rate and are completely unaware of their atrial fibrillation. Younger patients more commonly present with symptoms, but it's uh, surprising how much variability there is between patients and terms of the degree of symptoms.
0: Why does it seem to be more common that atrial fibrillation is in the elderly? What is it about getting older that seems to predispose to this arrhythmia?
1: Well, it's not clear, but atrial fibrillation in general is related to some abnormalities in the atrial myocardial substrate. So as patients get older, there is evidence that there's increasing fibrosis and small degrees of scarring in the atrium, and this probably predisposes to atrial fibrillation. The mechanism of atrial fibrillation is Uh, predominantly um, small areas of reentry or wandering wavelets of reentry throughout the atrium. And in general, any arrhythmia that's caused by a reentrant mechanism is aggravated by scar and structural abnormalities in the atrium.
0: Is atrial fibrillation typically an arrhythmia in isolation, or is it usually a marker that there's other underlying heart disease?
1: I would say that a large number of patients who have atrial fibrillation do have underlying structural heart disease. Besides age, uh, the most common risk factor for atrial fibrillation is hypertension. But again, that doesn't really result in visible structural changes in the atrium, but clearly advanced structural heart disease that we see in patients with congestive heart failure, ischemic cardiomyopathy, valvular heart disease, etc. Those patients do have a higher risk of atrial fibrillation. So, We do see atrial fibrillation in the absence of structural heart disease, which is increasingly becoming aware that young patients who have no structural heart disease, who develop idiopathic so-called atrial fibrillation is increasingly common.
0: I get this question a lot from patients. They wonder if they have atrial fibrillation, if they're at a higher risk of having a heart attack. Is there a correlation between a first episode of atrial fibrillation and complications down the road with ischemic disease?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Certainly, there are some data that patients with atrial fibrillation have a normal prognosis, and other data that they have a worsening prognosis. And It's highly variable, but yes, I think when you see a patient for the first time with atrial fibrillation, with their first presentation, it should always be viewed as a uh, potential red flag that they have some underlying heart disease and warrants a further investigation for occult coronary disease, occult valvular heart disease, or or cardiomyopathy. But I think if you are able to rule out any structural heart disease, you can reassure your patients that their atrial fibrillation is probably associated with a good prognosis.
0: Now, we know that the two major focuses that we want to really address with atrial fibrillation is getting the heart rate under control and then trying to prevent thromboembolism. Let's talk first about heart rate control. How important is it to get the heart rate under control, and and what is our goal? What should be our resting heart rate in patients with atrial fibrillation?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up those two topics first. Control of the ventricular rate and prevention of thromboembolic complications or stroke has received increasing emphasis recently, and in fact, I should just take this opportunity to make everyone aware that the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and the European Society of Cardiology came up with new guidelines last year. So the ACC, ESC guidelines on atrial fibrillation are available on the Internet, on the ACC website, and uh, are an extremely valuable resource. But to get back to your question, uh, these guidelines have increased the emphasis on both preventing stroke and controlling the ventricular response. And controlling the heart rate in patients who both have paroxysmal as well as persistent atrial fibrillation can go a long way in controlling symptoms, which is a major focus in the therapy. Adequate ventricular rate control uh, sometimes is difficult to achieve, but is usually achieved with beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and less so, more recently, with digoxin. But uh, your question about what's an adequate ventricular response, that's partly depends on the, the symptoms and the, and the patient. But in general, most of us strive for a resting heart rate under uh, 80 beats per minute.
0: I know there's been some research in the past that suggests that atrial fibrillation that's not well rate controlled has an increased risk of developing to left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Has this clearly been shown? And if that is the case, what type of heart rates over what period of time can uh, lead to a myopathic type process?
1: Well, that's a very good point. There's clearly evidence that patients who have a persistent tachycardia can develop a cardiomyopathy. We often fall in the conundrum when we see a patient with both heart failure and atrial fibrillation with a rapid rate, which came first, but it's clear that a subset of patients who have atrial fibrillation or another type of tachycardia can develop a cardiomyopathy. It's unclear exactly what rate is important, but in general, if the heart rate is over 120 beats per minute for a sustained period of time, that it puts the patient at risk. There's also evidence that you may require some genetic predisposition to developing a cardiomyopathy on the basis of a tachycardia. But interestingly, this is a very effective model in inducing ventricular dysfunction and heart failure in, in animal models. So rapid heart rates can clearly lead to tachycardia related cardiomyopathy.
0: You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and my guest today is Dr. Brad Knight, and we are discussing the approach to treating atrial fibrillation. Let's turn to the concern about thromboembolic phenomenon, and let's start first with just trying to quantitate the risk. What is the risk of having a stroke or another type of embolism with chronic atrial fibrillation?
1: Well, the risk of stroke with chronic atrial fibrillation is highly dependent on additional risk factors. If a patient has a completely normal heart, and persistent atrial fibrillation and is young and has no history of prior stroke or hypertension, that patient's risk of stroke is actually quite low. There's a cumulative effect of different risk factors. There's a variety of scoring techniques or risk stratifying methods to identify patients who are at high risk, but certainly a history of hypertension, history of structural heart disease, such as ventricular dysfunction or valvular heart disease, history of prior stroke, advanced age, which currently in the guidelines has been increased to an age of 75. These are risk factors which, especially if cumulative, can be associated with a risk of stroke as high as 5 to 10 percent per year.
0: Is there any elderly group where the risk is still considered uh, low? So you mentioned 75 as a, a cutoff. If a 75-year-old with atrial fibrillation does not have any of these other risk factors, are they at lower risk than uh, the more general elderly population?
1: They probably are at lower risk, but again, it's more of a, it's all relative, and the real question is whether the risk of stroke is greater than the risk of taking Coumadin. The risk of stroke in a patient over age 75, even without additional risk factors, is high enough to warrant anticoagulation with warfarin.
0: When is aspirin alone sufficient to reduce the risk? Is it based on age or is it based on risk factors?
1: It's based on both, age being one risk factor. If patients are under age 65 and have no structural heart disease, again, no history of hypertension, diabetes, diabetes, prior stroke or underlying mechanical or structural disease, then aspirin is in accordance with the guidelines. Now, aspirin in general, however, is controversial because there's very limited data that it actually reduces the risk of stroke. Presumably because the risk of taking aspirin is relatively low, it has made it into the guidelines for patients who don't have an indication for warfarin.
0: And then when do you consider the use of antiarrhythmic medications?
1: Well, antirhythmic drugs are important in maintaining helping maintain sinus rhythm. So once you've evaluated a patient and your impression is that rate control alone is inadequate in controlling their symptoms, then the next step would be rhythm control with an antirhythmic drug. I think that a recent trial called the affirm trial has received a lot of attention which demonstrated that rate control alone is not inferior to rhythm control. So there's been a little less emphasis on rhythm control as a way to treat patients with atrial fibrillation. But having said that, there's clearly patients who are very symptomatic despite adequate rate control who would benefit from maintaining sinus rhythm and should be treated accordingly. The guidelines actually are, in this arena, very helpful. There's a nice algorithmic approach that's listed and how to choose the antiarrhythmic drugs for individual patients.
0: Now here's a question that I think is probably the harder one to really get a good answer for. If you have somebody that you've controlled their rhythm, they're on an anti-rhythmic and you've controlled their rhythm, they've been in sinus rhythm now for a good length of time, a year let's say, Is it safe to stop Coumadin therapy in that patient, or how long should we continue to anticoagulate to prevent embolism?
1: Well, it's a very important question and a lesson that we learned from clinical trials recently, but in the past, we would have stopped their Coumadin usually a month after we've cardioverted them or when we felt comfortable that we've maintained sinus rhythm. And one reason may be that there's a high percentage of patients who have asymptomatic episodes of atrial fibrillation once they're treated, uh, which does not significantly reduce their risk of stroke. You know the answer to your question would be to anybody who had an indication for warfarin before you started rhythm control should probably be on lifelong anticoagulation.
0: Is atrial flutter very similar to atrial fibrillation in terms of risk and current guidelines for therapies?
1: That's a great question. We didn't talk much about the initial diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, but it's important to make sure that in a patient who carries that diagnosis truly has atrial fibrillation because there are similar and related arrhythmias such as atrial flutter. Atrial flutter has been found to be associated with stroke. It may be less than atrial fibrillation because it's a little less disorganized, but still is treated similarly with respect to to Coumadin. But I think it is very important because if we can recognize that the patient has predominantly atrial flutter or only atrial flutter, uh, that patient may be more easily cured with an ablation procedure and eliminate the need for long-term anticoagulation.
0: And if an ablation procedure is done, then Coumadin can be safely stopped after the area has healed?
1: For atrial flutter, I would say that that would be a standard of care after we've treated them for at least a month after the procedure to allow recovery of atrial mechanical function, anticoagulation, I think could be stopped if the only thing that's been documented in the past has been atrial flutter.
0: I want to thank Dr. Bradley Knight, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing atrial fibrillation and its management approach. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.